0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the story of a zealous sporting watchdog and whether its heavy-handed approach to doping is sending the wrong message to Sunday league athletes. This story begins back in 2014 with one man, Joshua Townsend. Townsend is a former army recruit and hairdresser based in Christchurch. Back in 2014, he set up an illegal business importing raw ingredients from overseas and manufacturing them into performance and image-enhancing drugs, which he sold through a website. Among the stable of drugs he sold was a mouth spray called Clembuterol, developed to help livestock lose weight and build muscle. It's not illegal as a substance, but it is illegal for competitive athletes to take clenbuterol. However, it's a popular drug among the sort of bodybuilding and gym bunny scene, so Townsend had a pretty solid client base. In a single year, the business brought in 350 grand in sales before medical watchdog Medsafe got wind of the business. And following a sting operation in 2015, Townsend was served with court summons and investigators gained access to his computer his emails and a big database of clients. And that is when Drug Free Sport New Zealand got involved.
1: So Drug Free Sport have an information sharing agreement with Medsafe.
0: That's Dana Johansson, a national sport correspondent for Stuff.co.nz, who's been following the saga for about three years.
1: And they went through, I think there were about 12,000 emails on this database, um, which included names, purchases, even dosages, things like that. So basically it was a case of going through all these emails um and finding names that jumped out to them, or maybe references to sport, and through this process, they found about 107 athletes that had, you know, bought these prohibited substances.
0: So, what did drug-free sport kind of do once they were presented with these names?
1: So then it was a case of going through and, and then building a case against these individuals, um, and it was a very long, very arduous process. The amount of investigator hours that, that were put on into this must have been immense. They got their hands on this database in early 2016, and it wasn't until the end of 2016 that we saw the first cases kind of Trickle out through the sports tribunal and the NZ rugby judiciary. And even then, no one quite put two and two together and, and, and saw that, that they were all, all, these cases were becoming before these judicial bodies were linked to this website. And it wasn't until the end of 2017 that it became big news um, and Drug Free Sport New Zealand kind of announced the extent of, of what they were doing here and what they'd found.
0: Clembuterol is on the World Anti-Doping Authority's list of banned substances. That means, provided you're a member of an official sports organisation, and pretty much anyone who plays any form of organised sport is, just buying some of it can land you a ban from any involvement in any sport. Like, it doesn't matter whether or not you actually took any of it. If you bought it, you bought a two-year ban. At the very least, no arguments.
1: The initial reaction, I guess, amongst the public was like, oh my goodness, we've got this widespread doping problem in New Zealand. This is huge. Are there going to be any big names? Are there going to be any international sports stars in this list? Um, But I guess as more and more cases trickled through the judiciary and and we kind of learned more about the the backstory behind it, um, a lot of these athletes were were, what you wouldn't really term them athletes really. They were, they were low level sports participants. They were guys playing club cricket, club rugby um, and certainly there were a few people that were competing at, at higher levels. There were a couple of um, brothers actually that were playing in the New Zealand ice hockey team. Uh, there, there might have been a couple of provincial rugby players but by and large they were low level sports participants.
0: The first athlete from Town 10's list to be prosecuted was a rugby player, Adam Jowsey. Now Jowsey represented New Zealand's under-23 university team and he also played a bit of premier grade rugby in Manawatu.
1: He was a young guy. He had seen a, an ad on Facebook, I believe, and, and it sold Clem as the, uh, the celebrity swimming product of choice.
0: As advertised... By people like Victoria Beckham, Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan.
1: And you know, like all the stuff you buy online, you click on it and think about it later, maybe have buyer's remorse a bit later. So he didn't really make any sort of proper um, inquiries as to what what this product was, whether it was dangerous or not, or even whether um, it was a prohibited substance or not. So um, yeah, and really his, his main motivation was weight loss. And I think he said um, it actually adversely impacted his performance on the rugby field because he lost so much weight. <laughs> <laughs> he was a big prop and then um, became yeah quite ineffective.
0: <laughs> so to recap, Drug Free Sport NZ sees Adam Jowsey's name in the email database. They get in touch and he says, yep, I bought this supplement because I wanted to lose weight. Sorry, I, I didn't realise it was banned. My bad. He's not a professional athlete. And drug-free sport accepts he didn't buy clenbuterol to get a competitive advantage. So what happens next?
1: Basically, the sanctions are so prescribed that these adjudicating bodies have no real choice but to, to ban them from sport.
0: An easy way to think of these sporting bodies is that drug-free sport is sort of like the police. It gathers evidence. Uh, it decides whether it has enough to establish a case. The sports tribunal is kind of like a court evidence is presented and it weighs up whether there should be a sanction and how severe that should be.
1: So I think he was banned for two years and his case just became I guess a familiar story as as they rolled their way through.
0: Was he looking to gain an advantage a competitive advantage or was it simply this thing is banned you we have proof of you buying it therefore you get a ban?
1: Yeah, effectively. I mean, there was some sympathy for his set of circumstances and there is is provision in the sanctioning process that's called No Significant Fault. They sort of said, we understand you weren't doing this for a performance enhancing, you know, it didn't even cross your mind that you are doing it. It was purely for vanity reasons, but they can't just dismiss the case, you know, where there's evidence of an anti-doping rule violation, they have to apply a sanction. Um, so two years was actually you know, quite, quite a lenient sentence.
0: What are the rules that actually denote what an athlete can't take?
1: There is the WADA code, mm-hmm. um, which basically outlines a set of rules and also a whole list of prohibited substances, which is, I think there's about 300 right. or so. Stanozole, dihydrotestosterone, metolazone, prostenazole hydrochlorothiazide. But each country adopts their own uh, sports anti-doping rules um, which kind of make f- for regional differences in terms of how the cases are tried.
0: Cool so the World Anti-Doping Agency sets out a broad framework you can make limited changes within that framework but broadly it applies to every country.
1: That's right. Aminoglutethimide, <laughs> oxymethylone, triamcinolone,
0: The Clembuterol hit list is an absolute mishmash of these sorts of stories. There's Christopher Ware. He was a club cricketer in Auckland who, again, bought the supplement to lose weight and ended up serving a two-year ban. There's Blake Roth, a club rugby player in Southland who bought Clembuterol hoping it would help with his asthma, also banned for two years. And then there's the case of Paratene Edwards. Edwards played four first-class rugby games for the Hawke's Bay Magpies, the last of them back in 2004 but he'd had nothing to do with any level of rugby since 2010. In 2017, his name showed up in Joshua Townsend's database and he was summoned to a hearing.
1: At the time of his original hearing, he had been in a serious car accident, from what I understand, and so he did not engage with that process. Um, I think early on, investigators had contacted him said, hey, you're in this database, what do you say about that? And his response was, That was ages ago, and I haven't played rugby in 10 years or something. You know, I've had all these hip injuries and things like that. And Drug Free Sport then went and found evidence on Facebook of him coaching a team. He said, well, you're still involved in sport here. So um, they pushed on. Um, And then in the meantime, Edwards has this car accident and is unable to take part in the hearing. He, you know, wasn't, wasn't using his cell phone. He wasn't checking his emails at that time. Um, So he wasn't even aware the hearing was taking place and didn't learn that he'd even been banned until he read about it in the newspaper the next day. Um, And at that point, he sort of, you know, inquired more about it and he was able to appeal that decision. And yes, as it turned out, he had not played rugby since 2010. He had, um, I think what happens, and apparently it's quite common, is that Clubs will roll over registrations from year to year without anyone kind of signing anything. They just do it just in case hey we might we might be able to convince this guy to come back this season. So yeah, and the uh, drug free sport actually you know they got quite the telling off by the judiciary because I think one there was probably if they'd looked into it deep enough, they would have been able to find ample evidence that he had not played rugby. And definitely, there is testing and investigation standards outlined in the wider code, and I'm not sure they met their obligation here because you've got a, you you know, if you're going to pursue these cases, you've got to keep an open mind to it, and you've got to look for evidence. One that they might have been playing rugby and, and bound by these rules, but equally, you have to look for reasons why they might not be bound by the rules and I don't think they did that in this case.
0: For someone who's playing club rugby uh, or who used to play club rugby five years ago if they're not still playing rugby what's the big deal how does it affect your life?
1: Yeah that's the thing people say oh well if they're not playing sport anymore then who really cares but um, it's not you're not just banned from sport you're banned from basically having any involvement in sport so you can't coach a team you can't manage a team you basically need to be entirely separated from your sports community, um, so that's where I find it quite troubling. In that, on one hand, drug-free sport are saying, you know, we're doing this to protect the health of our sports people because these are. Quite dangerous substances they're taking, and I absolutely am sympathetic with that. And I think there needs to be a lot more awareness raised among those lower levels, in particular, about the dangers of taking these substances. I mean, because they were it was not pharmaceutical grade; it was effectively just being mixed in a bathtub somewhere. So it was hugely dangerous for these people to be taking it. Um, but equally, you've got to think about the health impacts of removing someone from their entire sports community. One, you know, we're always banging on about the health benefits of playing sport. Um, not just physically, but mentally, um, and to, to I guess, isolate someone from their team, their, their teammates, their sports community, is has a huge impact on them.
0: That decision was met with scorn by some members of the sports tribunal. Lawyer Nigel Hampton QC likened it to using a sledgehammer attempting to crack the tiniest of nuts. But the most controversial case by far is that of Athlete XYZ, so-called because he can't be named, for reasons we'll hear in a second.
1: This guy was signed up to his local surf lifesaving club, therefore making him bound by the anti-doping rules. But he was simply a volunteer at the club. And so when the sports tribunal were confronted with this, they thought, Mm, hang on a minute. This is this is getting quite deep into the lower levels of sport now. If you're just saying anyone that's simply a member of a club, you know, some people might be members of yacht clubs just to go along to, or bowls clubs bowls just clubs. to go I along and have say. a drink. You know? yeah. yeah, not to actually be a, a competitor, but just to be involved with their, their local sports club or sports team or community. So at this point, you know, I guess it, it raised a few, the, a few legal red flags with them, and they... Um, instructed a full kind of legal airing of, of all the issues. Um and it's really unfortunate for XYZ because he's become basically a guinea pig test case for, for all of this um, and is being dragged through the system. Because I think initially he was quite happy just to accept his ban and move on. But um, the tribunal really you know, felt strongly about the implications of this decision and wanted a full legal hearing. So they got him legal help. I think David Neild from um, Chapman Trip has been working pro bono on this, which is... <laughs> Probably been very costly for him as I think he must have spent a lot of time on it, and yeah, so it, it, they it got to the tribunal and eventually they ruled in favour of drug free sport New Zealand because it actually emerged that while he was a volunteer for his local surf life saving club, he had actually competed in one masters event, which therefore made him a competitor um but drug free sport you know stuck to their initial state of position which which was club membership alone is enough to bind you to those rules. But if you, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read the decision, but it was actually extraordinary. Like They're normally pretty boring, let's face it, these judicial decisions. But um, they really went to town on Drug-Free Sport New Zealand and, and questioned, I guess, their approach in policing low-level athletes. And also they called on um, sports rulemakers, which I guess in this case is Sport New Zealand and the government, I guess, uh, the Minister of Sport and Recreation, Grant Robertson, um, to really consider... Deeply, what what this means um, for sport, and I guess you know, have a public debate about it, and really bring it out into the open, because they thought that you know the general population would be quite staggered to learn that they are actually bound by sports anti-doping rules. And then Drug-Free Sport New Zealand have decided to appeal the sanction in this case. So XYZ was handed down a two-year ban eventually. Um, But now it is going to the Court of Arbitration for Sport.
0: This is the highest sporting court in the world. This
1: is the top court, yeah. So this is the body that is going to decide whether Russia can compete at the Olympics this year. They've just um, ruled on the Sun Yang case, the Chinese swimmer. Um, They're dealing with Man City and and their, um, their financial issues. So, yeah, now they're going to rule on whether a, a club golfer from somewhere in New Zealand can, can join his mates on the golf course this year.
0: All of this has come from one guy who was selling these products online and happened to get busted for it. Does that mean that the problem is almost certainly more widespread than that? This is just one supplier, you know. Surely there are other suppliers of these products into New Zealand.
1: Absolutely. I'm sure there will be um, big overseas outfits that are selling to New Zealand. I think a lot of these drugs, you know, they're widely marketed among um, the kind of gym community. Um, I think they're quite popular with bodybuilding. So definitely I think it's it's happening. But what's probably unique in this case was that we had a New Zealand supplier, That, um, but I think a lot of these other athletes might be getting it th- from international sources, in which case it becomes a job for customs to seize these products and then decide whether to pursue it.
0: Wow, so we really could just be looking at the tip of the iceberg here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's. I think it's probably you know, really timely that the sports tribunal have stepped in here and said, hey we need to really consider the rules and the implications of it. And also there's the argument, you know, I guess there's the expectation that drug free sport are going to go after, you know we, we they're taking our taxpayer dollars and you think they're using that resource, that finite resource to go after the elite athletes and to really ensure that they're, they're clamping down on doping at the top, top end. And I think it's probably been a surprise to a lot of people that Actually, they've spent three years going after, for what the majority were, were were club athletes.
0: From the other side of the fence, I mean, if if you were coming up against someone who you knew was taking some sort of performance-enhancing drug, how would that make you feel as a social athlete?
1: Um, for me personally, I could not give a toss, but I play at such low level that yeah, it really wouldn't matter to me. Um, yeah, I play very much low level social netball, but certainly yeah, there's the argument there that you know the club rugby scene is very competitive, and I'm sure people would be dismayed to learn that there are potentially teams they're lining up against that that might be full of doped athletes.
0: Mm. Performance enhancing drugs are sophisticated these days, right? Like it's not just it's not eighty style. I want to be Faster, more powerful. There are drugs out there that can make you concentrate, that can hype you up, that can make you more confident. We we do have to be sophisticated about our approach to doping in sport if we want sport to maintain its integrity, right?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's absolutely true. But also, what comes up so much in this investigation is intent, and uh, I I cannot think of one case that I saw where the athlete in question had taken these. These substances to try, you know, be a beast on the rugby field, or that was, it was essentially for vanity reasons, um, which doesn't, you know, negate ma- maybe some advantages they got on the field, but certainly I do feel like intent is important in, in a lot of these cases.
0: There are lots of people who are listening to this who might be a member of a sports organisation, and they might say, look, this has got an easy fix make these anti-doping rules apply to professional athletes, people who get paid to play a sport or receive funding to play a sport. Does that make sense to you?
1: It's really difficult to know where to draw the line because then you've got Athletes that might just be a tier below but they're definitely on that high performance track and, you know, it might mean the difference between them making a team or making a broader national squad, getting their, getting a little bit of funding, getting becoming a carded athlete. Um, so absolutely I think you cannot just say elite and professionals only. I think there's definitely an argument for, for capturing some of that sub-national level. But, yeah, the difficulty is knowing where to draw that line. Um, and certainly that's something that's been occupying the thoughts of all national anti-doping agencies.
0: In June of last year, Drug Free Sport overturned Paratene Edwards' ban, saying it became apparent at his second hearing that Edwards had been registered as a player without his knowledge. Four months later, it put out a call for feedback on its rules asking stakeholders like uh, athlete associations whether they'd support taking more discretion in how they treat individual cases. The New Zealand Athletes Federation overwhelmingly supports the idea and there could be more wide-ranging changes on the horizon too.
1: We're going to see a change in the wider code, which gets introduced in 2021, which will for the first time recognise um, recreational athletes versus elite athletes that doesn't mean that anti-doping agencies won't pursue these low-level athletes it just means that maybe there'll be a different range of sanctions for them.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, please give us a rating so other people can find us. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell and thanks to Stuff's National Sports Correspondent, Dana Johansson. Matewa.